another ABI podcast. I'm Ann Lawton, a professor of law at Michigan State University and the resident scholar at the American Bankruptcy Institute. I have three guests with me today. All three are National Bankruptcy Conference conferees and members of the American College of Bankruptcy. Jonathan Landers is a partner in the firm of Scarola, Malone, and Zubatov in New York City. Brady Williamson is a member of the Business Finance, Bankruptcy, and Restructuring Practice Group of Godfrey Kahn in Madison, Wisconsin. And Elizabeth Gibson is the Burton Craig Professor of Law at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Welcome, everyone. Thank you. So today we will be discussing a National Bankruptcy Conference report authored by our guests about the case of Wellness International Network Limited versus Sharif. The Supreme Court granted cert in wellness on two questions and held oral argument in the case about two weeks ago. The first issue before the court involves count five of Wellness's adversary preceding complaint in Sharif's Chapter 7 bankruptcy case. Wellness objected to Sharif's discharge under Section 727 on four grounds. It also sought a declaratory judgment in count five that the assets held in a living trust were property of the bankruptcy estate because the trust was Sharif's alter ego. The question before the court then is whether that alter ego claim is a stern claim. The second question before the court is whether bankruptcy courts can render final judgment on stern claims so long as the parties consent, and if so, what constitutes consent? So these are complicated issues, so I'd like to start by outlining the various ways that the court could decide the case. Elizabeth, in your portion of the report, you state that if the court determines that the alter ego claim is not a stern claim, it is unlikely it will decide the consent issue. But if the court decides that the alter ego claim is a stern claim, there are different paths the court could take. Would you lay out those alternatives for us? Um, yes, and, and, and Anne, let me just say on the question one, the court could decide um, that, that it is a stern claim. Um, and therefore, the bankruptcy court lacked authority uh, to, dis- to enter a final judgment as to that, in which case then it seems like the consent issue would then become relevant. Um, so notwithstanding the fact that it was one that the bankruptcy court didn't have ultimate authority to decide, um, was it permissible then that the parties consented and therefore gave authority to the court to decide it? So that's one way it could come out is, they would say, yes, it is a stern claim, but we'll reach the, the consent issue. And they could uphold the judgment on the grounds that the parties um, at least impliedly consented uh, to have the bankruptcy court determine the matter. Um, if they should decide that um, it wasn't a stern claim, um, it was something that the, both the statute and uh, the Constitution permit a bankruptcy judge to decide, that would seem to end the matter, um, and then therefore uh, they would uphold the judgment of the bankruptcy court. Um, and if I might add, an interesting, I thought, part, um, and at least somewhat encouraging to me, uh, part of the oral argument was the court um, seemed very engaged um, on which issue to decide, uh, which is, perhaps which issue to decide first, um, and just, Justice Breyer um, on several occasions raised the question, could they decide both issues in favor of the petitioner? Um, so that raises the possibility that they might decide um, on two grounds that the petitioner wins. 
Um, they could say it was not a stern claim, and therefore the bankruptcy court had authority to decide it. Uh, moreover, uh, had it been otherwise, th- there's not a problem because the parties consented. And um, Justice uh, Breyer seemed to favor that going in that direction and asked the Solicitor General whether there was precedent for the court basically ruling for the petitioner on two grounds, each of which alone would be sufficient. Justice Scalia seemed not to like that possibility. Yes, I, I found that interesting as well. Um, do you think it's likely they'll do that? Do you have any sense that they'll do both? Well, the part, and, and we may all disagree on how we heard the argument, but you know, the reason that I was encouraged and, and sort of in the direction that I seem like the court might be heading in the direction I hope they will, which would be to uphold the bankruptcy court's judgment here. Um, it seemed like they were saying to the petitioner and to the solicitor general, several members of the court, um, you know, which ground should we decide for you on? Uh, and can we decide for you on both grounds? Uh, which, if I were a petitioner, that would be just the kind of questioning I would like from the court. Um, so, you know, it did seem to me several justices would phrase that in terms of where the lower court's the most confused or kind of what would be the issue that would be most helpful for us to decide. Um, and then, again, Justice Breyer saying, well, if we think both are important, can't we decide both? Um, so, you know, you can't. I mean, lower courts certainly have alternative holdings. You win for two reasons. Um, and so I think it is a possibility that the court, if they have the votes, could come to that conclusion here. So, John or Brady, do you agree? Do you think that they may decide both? What's your sense of from having read the oral argument on that? This is Brady. I, I also get the sense that the court understood, certainly some justices did, that they may have tipped over a hornet's nest here um, inadvertently, uh, first with uh, the, the Stern case and then failing to correct uh, some of the shortcomings of Stern in their in the second case, uh, Arkansas. I absolutely agree with, with uh, Professor Gibson. Uh, it's important, I think, to look at this case in context. And the U.S. Supreme Court has been deciding bankruptcy cases for, what, 200 years. And uh, it may well be that this one turns out to be in the top five, uh, not because it's elegant or because the stakes are very high. Actually, the stakes are not high at all uh, for the parties and in a practical sense, but they are very, very high in a practical sense for uh, the bankruptcy courts, the district courts, and as I'm sure we'll discuss, uh, the U.S. magistrate system, because it all comes down to to a fundamental question really first um, articulated in Marathon Pipeline, which is uh, the tension between Article One bankruptcy powers and, and Article Three judicial powers. So, Jonathan, did you have anything you wanted to add there? Uh, you know, uh, Ian, asking me is sort of like hiring a football coach who lost 13 games last year <laughs> and telling him to win the Super Bowl. Uh, uh, I've been wrong pretty consistently in the past about what the Supreme Court's going to do. But I agree with both Elizabeth and and Brady. I think Brady was using uh, very uh, careful language when he called it a hornet's nest. I think one could use other terms which would 
be perhaps more descriptive, but it, it is certainly, from my point of view, uh, a messy situation. And, and one of the issues, I think, before the court is whether they're really going to try to solve the problem or just to create another problem that simply uh, builds on the existing uh, uncertainties. And one of the problems with the cases Brady referred to is they've created a great deal of, of uncertainty. And uh, one of the things I think the court would try to say is, look, we're just tired of dealing with these issues. We're going to set, uh, set out some pretty clear rules about how we're going to deal with these kinds of uh, situations. And one of the points made by the National Bankruptcy Conference in the papers was a need for very clear guidelines about how this works. So at least I'm optimistic that they might rule on both grounds simply on the basis that even if the, uh, let's say, whatever definition they come up with of stern claims and how you deal with them is not completely precise, uh, at the margin, the close questions will probably be resolved by a broad concept of consent. Okay, so let's go to the stern claims and this hornet's nest that you describe. In the report, Jonathan and Brady, the section that you, you wrote, you nicely summarize what you call the court's uh, guidance from Stern. So could you explain what problems have been generated as a result of that guidance? Well, unfortunately, the guidance is, is, is very, uh, very vague. For one thing, the court gave inconsistent signals. They said it was a narrow decision, but then they used tests, which, as we indicated in the, court, in the report, could be very broadly interpreted and applied to all sorts of of proceedings in in a bankruptcy case. But I think equally important is they've used terminology that doesn't have a long background in bankruptcy jurisprudence. So it's not like you're building on a framework which lower courts can follow. It's basically virgin territory. So I think that's part of the reason that the courts have been uh, so confused. Uh, Briefly, the consequences we see is a great multiplication of, of, of proceedings with uncertainties of, of exactly what is and is not a stern uh, claim. We think uh, that certainly already occurred. It's not a hypothetical type of thing. Um, we see the bankruptcy courts being very uh, wary of exercising their authority, of writing longer opinions, of doing it both ways and things like, like that. Uh, we see situations where you're multiplying proceedings because, again, uh, bankruptcy courts are, ba- are writing for two audiences, one the parties in the case, but also for the uh, district court on review. You've created procedural uncertainties as to exactly how this works in a situation where it's not clear whether the case is in stern or out of stern. You have definite questions about whether uh, decisions by the BAP uh, can be appealed, and, and in a sense the whole doctrine calls into some question of the validity of the BAP, since uh, the BAP judges are Article I judges, not Article III uh, judges. And finally, and this is something that, that may resonate, although it's hard to say, um, there's no question that the district courts are going to have a lot more work. They're going to have to decide cases they previously didn't have to decide. Uh, they're also maybe asked by parties, and I can tell you that 
Uh, this is what happened after the Grand Financiera and Northern Pipeline cases, where people who weren't sure whether the bankruptcy court, which said it had authority, whether that's binding and effective, especially in the light of the post-Stern decisions, which have allowed parties who never objected to object on appeal, uh, whether or not you want to get a comfort order of some court from the district court initially saying, yeah, I'm okay with this and the bankruptcy court is, is right. So you have all of those consequences going on, and the results have been a lot of delay, uh, gaming by, uh, by the parties, making a, 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 giving parties a lot of leverage to make procedural-type motions. Now, I'd say only one other thing in this regard, um, and, and that is things have been pretty quiet in the last year, and at least after CERN was decided, there were a whole bunch of opinions by bankruptcy courts and uh, some appell by appellate courts, by the circuit courts as well, on CERN issues. But that seems to have died down. Now, uh, one could argue, I guess, that it's died down because the rules have become come clear, but I think that's hard to say. I think more likely everybody's just waiting for the wellness case to be decided before they do very much in this area. I guess that would be my, my view. Brady, what do you think? Well, you're right. This is Brady, and there's, a, there's really an irony here. And the irony is that in, in 1977, beginning in 1978, you know, Congress enacted this sweeping bankruptcy code, which gave bankruptcy courts real authority. And then uh, four or five years later, the Supreme Court in Northern Pipeline uh, certainly restricted or, or cabined that authority. And two years after that, in 1984, uh, Congress this may be rare, but Congress really did try to make things more precise and more certain in, in the 1984 amendments. And so what now has happened is that the Supreme Court has made what was fairly clear really unclear, and with the consequences that Professor Gibson and John have, uh, have outlined. Let me ask about one of those tests from Stern that seems to make things less clear. At oral argument, Justice Sotomayor expressed reservations about this, quote, sort of augment the estate argument, right? She said something like, anything that's in the estate augments it. She seemed to want to get away from that test. And that's one of the uh, sort of tests that some of the lower courts are using. Is that test workable? Uh, this is Brady. I don't think it's workable, and uh, it comes, of course, uh, from the Stern decision itself. And, and the reason it's, it's not workable goes to really almost an existential question about what, what a bankruptcy court is, what a bankruptcy judge can do. And to say that a specific dispute may end up augmenting a bankruptcy estate, you know, that, that's true for a lot of what, before Stern, bankruptcy courts routinely, routinely did and didn't think twice about it because a determination of what property the estate is, what is and is not in the estate, and therefore what is and is not available to creditors, it really goes to the heart of bankruptcy. And I think this whole notion of augmentation and private versus public claims only, uh, only 
shrouded the issue in fog. So let's talk a little bit about what your solution is. You talk about this in the report. One thing that I'd like to ask you is you distinguish in the report between stern claims and stern issues. Could you explain that difference and why it's significant? When you talk about stern claims, you're talking about what I would call, at least in the old days, a cause of action. A sues B on a particular theory or something like that. Uh, And at least when the Supreme Court talked about stern claims, they were talking about a counterclaim uh, in the bankruptcy case uh, on a theory that the uh, debtor made against uh, a party that had filed a claim. But one of the things that's happened in Stern is that, that some courts have begun to sort of subdivide and say, well, we have a cause of action here uh, that has various components. It may have factual issues. It may have two or three legal issues. And some of those individual components may raise a stern issue. Uh, For example, in in one case which is cited in our report, the Fifth Circuit said, well, we're not going to decide the factual issues on this, uh, uh, that the factual issues don't have to come within the stern claim category, but the interpretation of a Texas statute did come within the stern category. Or even in, in wellness itself, you have the court saying, well, not only is, um, is the alter ego claim a stern claim, but, the, but there is a question whether the district court also must supervise discovery. In other words, whether the discovery process itself is, is subject to stern. Now, that's, that's what that really means in the, in the, in the world is if that's true, the whole case has to move to the district court. If they're going to have to supervise not only uh, the decision on the merits, but stern claims. So that, but, but discovery as well. So that's really what we're talking about, Anne. So I see this as a lead-in to your solution to the problem, which you propose in the report. Uh, you talk about one constitutional case. So how would you craft a rule of decision that narrows stern and also makes the boundaries clearer for bankruptcy courts. Well, and in the area of, of civil procedure, uh, uh, the courts have adopted very flexible standards for questions of joinder of parties when you have multi-party uh, cases. And even though there are questions when, when you have a case involving, let's say, multiple claims, some of them may be subject to federal jurisdiction, some may not. And the courts have, have adopted a sort of concept of one constitutional case and said that as a practical matter, uh, in regular non-bankruptcy types of cases, if the cases, if, if multiple claims arise out of the same transaction or occurrence, a series of transactions or, or occurrences, is, or even more practically, are such that it makes sense to try them together, you have one constitutional case. And we would argue that a test along those lines, which is a very practical, functional type of, of test, would make sense for this, uh, for this area as well. Uh, to be specific as to the wellness case, the whole case really re- revolved around the validity of the trust and, and whether it was enforceable. That's common to both the 
bankruptcy issues on discharge and the alter ego claim. So we would think of that as one constitutional case which ought to be able to be tried at the same co- in the same court at the same time. Um, I just wanted to point out that the um, the conference as a whole, I guess, didn't necessarily endorse this one constitutional case theory. There, the ultimate thing that the NBC approved was just kind of keep stern at the bare minimum of what it held. Um, so I, I mean, I I think um, John's ideas have a lot of merit, but so just sort of. I think they want to make clear that what the, what the conference decided and what could are our own ideas. The reason that the conference adopted its position is because they felt that the one constitutional case concept had already been rejected in Stern, and I think it's fair to say that that could only be adopted if the court went back to square one. Uh, right, right. The conference position assumed that would not happen. I think that's right. Yeah. Do you think the court will start at square one? On Stern? Uh, uh, yes, on Stern. Yeah, and, and here's my problem. I read the, the, the discussion, and the problem is, as Elizabeth, I believe, and maybe Brady, too, said the Supreme Court seems to be groping for a test. And the problem is all the things they mentioned got booted out. For instance, they talked about federal versus state law. Uh, and and uh, Justice uh, Breyer uh said, well, the court has to be able to determine property of the estate, but on the other hand, uh, under the Butner case and many others, the question of property of the estate is really determined in most situations by state law. So it's hard to talk about uniformity of law when the only thing that's uniform is that you look to state law. Uh, They talked about legal title, but, but the Stern claim concept in Stern Reject, sort of rejected the question of the issue, the issue of legal title. They talked about uh, uh, they talked about the distinction between property of the estate and fraudulent conveyance, and several justices sort of came to the conclusion reluctantly that you could characterize a given transaction one way or the other, that it wasn't a bright line test. They talked about possession, but possession doesn't help you. Uh, in a case uh, such as this, because the property is intangible and it's tied up in trust. I mean, under the pre-code law, the courts had enormous problems with determining issues of possession for summary jurisdiction over intangible uh, property. And there's literally probably thousands of cases dealing with that issue. Finally, as we talked about earlier, they talked about the distinction between whether it's property of the estate or whether it's augmentation of, of the estate, and I believe Elizabeth or, or Brady said, well, you can do it either way. You can say a lot of things uh, relate to property, but they also result in augmenting the estate. So I, I think that to the extent that they were groping with all these things, they didn't succeed in articulating a test that would command a substantial majority of the court as sort of a substitute for what's there. So I think that the bottom line is that they're going to have to work something out to deal with these kinds of issues. You know, and uh, this decision, when it comes out, presumably sometime before June, um, will be of interest to virtually every bankruptcy practitioner. But it's going to be of equal, if not greater, interest to every federal district court judge 
uh, in the country because the court is not only defining what a bankruptcy court is, it's really defining what a district court is and who magistrates are. So notwithstanding the fact that the case itself is about a discovery dispute involving a trust, um, it's, it's really almost existential in, in giving the court an opportunity to define or define correctly um, the, these distinctions about who in the judicial system broadly defined is responsible for what. Brady raises a good point. We hadn't really touched on the magistrate judge implications here, but the the Seventh Circuit had tried to distinguish magistrate judges with respect to the consent issue um, that the Magistrate Act allows parties to consent to have a magistrate judge uh, con- here and, and enter judgments in civil proceedings. Um, and the Seventh Circuit had said, oh, well, that's different because otherwise they can just make um, – Proposed findings of fact and conclusions of law. I think the the respondent, uh, the lawyer for Sharif in the Supreme Court, properly said that magistrate judge uh, statute really isn't distinguishable here. So should the court find that parties can't consent to have a bankruptcy judge decide a stern or a non-core claim, the same would be true for the magistrate judge provision. So as Brady points out, it, it would have significant major implications, I think, for the caseload of the district courts. Uh, I'd like to add one thing briefly, Anne, which we haven't mentioned, which is uh, at least a couple of justices also took a shot at arbitration on the ground, mm-hmm. and at least one could conceive of opinions that would limit arbitration as well. Let's move on from the Stern claim to consent. Elizabeth, I'd like to talk with you a little bit about some of the consent issues. Okay. So why, in your opinion, did the Seventh Circuit get it wrong when it held the Supreme Court already had decided in Stern that the code scheme implicates structural concerns? Well, the the Seventh Circuit um, in the lower court decision here noted that the Supreme Court in the Shore case um, had previously, that's, that's the most significant Supreme Court case that's talked about um, the ability of parties to consent to have adjudication by a non-Article III court. Um, And so the Seventh Circuit, I think, correctly um, noted that in that decision, the Supreme Court says, well, merely the the fact that the parties consent to have a non-Article III court, um, that takes care of any private concerns, any concerns about the fairness to the parties. They've given up that right. Um, But there still are issues, there still could be issues of, of structural concern. Uh, separation of powers, and to the extent that those structural separation of powers issues are implicated, the parties themselves can't waive that. So the Seventh Circuit said, therefore, we've got to figure out, are there structural principles involved here? And they looked to Stern and said, yes, the Supreme Court's already told us that um, the exercise of, of of authority by a bankruptcy court over a Stern claim does um, implicate separation of powers, is inconsistent with Article Three, And what I thought was wrong about that analysis is the, the Supreme Court decided that in Stern in a case in which there was no consent. So the Supreme Court had previously um, considered consent in the Shore case itself and upheld consent 
uh, before uh, an administrative agency, and it upheld consent uh, in the magistrate judge context in the Peretz case. And in both of those situations, the court said consent matters. Consent itself affects the analysis. So the merely the fact that the Supreme Court in Stern said, absent consent of the parties, the, the bankruptcy court lacks authority to enter a final judgment in this counterclaim, um, doesn't necessarily decide that they would find a sufficient um, a violation of separation of powers if the parties consented. And so I think looking at the Shore case, the court, the analysis needs to factor in the fact that the parties are not um, being subjected against their will to a non-Article Three court. And the court would consider also the extent to which Article Three judges do have significant control, uh, retain significant control over the case, even though it's being determined by a bankruptcy judge. So let me ask you something about, just to follow up a little bit, um, at oral argument, Justice Roberts made this comment in an exchange he had with Mr. Gannon from the Solicitor General's office. And he said something about how the structure still takes out of the federal courts our constitutional birthright to decide cases and controversies under Article Three. Does that suggest to you that he is leaning toward agreeing with the Seventh Circuit, or what do you make of that comment, if anything? Yes, I thought of all of the speakers on the court during oral argument. Um, the Chief Justice was the one who seemed to me the most likely to affirm. Um, and, of course, he was the author of Stern, um, and it seems to me he you know, is holding to that view that um, giving away any authority from the Article Three courts is, you know, undermining the structure of Article Three, um, And so I did not find him, he said nothing, he didn't say a lot during the oral argument, um, but that one colloquy um, there suggested he agrees, is likely to vote to affirm the Seventh Circuit, I think. Uh, this, is, this is Brady, and to, to reinforce Elizabeth's point, uh, this really goes to the whole notion of of stru- structural integrity, at least as the Chief Justice and perhaps some others see it, because not only would that make consent irrelevant, it it also makes Congress's pronouncements in Section 157 and and, and a number of other related provisions irrelevant. Because uh, going back to our all of our law school days, um, Congress can't legislate in contravention of the Constitution. Again, as Stern and the Chief Justice apparently see it. And Anne, may I add something else about that? Um, the questioning by the Chief Justice it seemed to me um, you know, he posed, I think, a hypothetical um, to the attorney from the Solicitor General's office that talked about, you know. Uh, a legislate a congressional court or legislative court that the just the judges serve for two or three years and yes. seemed like Congress had a lot of control over the decision making. Um, and the attorney from the Solicitor General's office, I thought, correctly pushed back on that and, and noted that there is a lot of um, control remains on, in the statute by Article Three judges. And again, the Chief Justice kind of dismissed that, but it seems to me he is 
his questioning suggested a you know a downplaying of what I think are significant controls um, in the statute. Obviously, the Article Three courts, the, the courts of appeals, appoint the judges. The district court decides whether to um, to refer the cases to the bankruptcy court, can withdraw the reference. And in a provision that I think significant, that's often overlooked, um, in, in 28 U.S.C. Section 151, um, it says that um, bankru- uh, bankruptcy judges um, can uh, that the bankruptcy judges have the authority that the statute confers um, ex- unless the um, that district courts by order or rule can limit the authority convert conferred by the statute on bankruptcy judges. So that to me is an important provision because Congress really doesn't have the final say here. It still says district judges, Article Three judges can limit the authority that Congress is purporting to give bankruptcy judges. Um, so it seems to me there are significant um, control in, retained by Article Three judges under the statute, and that that's significant in assessing the significance of party consent. And I, I want to add a, a, a sort of a practical point, and this is based on something that actually, or some things that actually happened. I know of at least two, two specific examples where. In a given bankruptcy case, a bankruptcy judge was thought to be out of control. Uh, and in each of those cases, the district court, on its own motion, withdrew the case from the bankruptcy court, uh, and in essence uh, made various statements about uh, why the case was being withdrawn. And, and while the district court did not make any rulings overruling what the bankruptcy court was doing, it basically sent it back to the to a different bankruptcy judge uh, for continuation of, of the matter. And that's real control. That's not hypothetical control. Those are things that actually happen. So the control power is there. Now, one can certainly argue, and maybe Justice Roberts, uh, Chief Justice Roberts' problem is, that the district judges aren't exercising enough of that kind of control, but it's there. So if your court gets to the point where it says that structural concerns are not implicated, then we get to this question of consent. So, uh, Elizabeth, the question with regard to the wellness case, then, is the bankruptcy court entered a default judgment against Sharif, right, on the discharge and the alter ego claims. So where is consent found there? Um, I think the consent is obviously here it's implied. It wasn't um, expressed and it wasn't in writing um, as the rules say it should have been, uh, the bankruptcy rules. Uh, but the consent was by their litigation conduct of, of litigating before the bankruptcy court, not asking for withdrawal of the reference um, and and. and engaging in discovery there, not asking the district court to take over the case. So it was the failure to ask for an Article Three court, in this case, that the, the Supreme Court would have to find was sufficient for consent. And I was just going to say that in some ways then goes back to your first question to me about the different possible outcomes. Um, you know, It seemed to me the court, certainly Justice Sotomayor and, and others were perhaps trying to come up with a better test than Stern has left us with. 
um, and not clear that they got that you know there's agreement on what that test should be. So one thought I had is the court might want to say, well, we don't have to decide that issue because whether or not it was a stern claim, the parties consented. Um, but then I think the difficulty with that route is they will have to face the implied consent issue here. First issue is can consent be implied? And I think the court has previously said yes, in sure. And so the more difficult issue was was there com- implied consent in this case? And what about the fact that the the rules, the bankruptcy rules, were violated and not having express written consent? Um, so that's a potential obstacle for them going off in this direction on its own. I, I wanted to also ask, at oral argument, Justice Scalia asked, and I know Justice Ginsburg followed up, if the court decides only one of the two issues, which one would you prefer it decided? So I'd like to ask all three of you, which one, if they're only going to decide one, would you prefer that the court decided? Well, this is Elizabeth. I'll go first. Um, I think probably all three of us feel like the attorneys before the court did, which is nobody wanted to give up an issue, and they said they're both important. Um, But when the court asks, you know, what maybe has the greatest impact or real-world impact here, I guess I would go with the consent issue um, if they only decided one. Um, And, again, of course, the the implication of only deciding one is that they're ruling for the petitioner on that ground, because otherwise they have to decide both. Um, So if they only decide that consent is valid, um, I mean, I think that is significant because there is a circuit split on that issue. The Ninth Circuit has upheld the consent provisions of 157, and the Seventh, Sixth, Seventh, and Fifth Circuits have, have held it unconstitutional. So to me, that's the more significant issue and because it also has implications for um, outside the bankruptcy context. Brady, John? Uh, this is Brady. I, I would concur with, with Elizabeth primarily because of her last sentence about the implications outside of the, the bankruptcy process because I, I don't understand how you could, uh, how a court could hold that you can consent to a magistrate but you couldn't consent to a bankruptcy judge. This is John. With with deference, I I would go with the first because I think that if you don't decide the first one on what a stern claim is and how it works, the situation seems is remains chaotic for the bankruptcy system, and it's going to take another case somehow not involving a consent issue at all to straighten the mess out. And and I think, as I said before, that there's been sort of a temporary, informal stay of courts deciding these issues, but that's not going to last much longer. Let, let me uh, add, and perhaps as we get toward the end, this comment has some resonance. Uh, I think uh, many of us think the U.S. Supreme Court has been taking too many bankruptcy cases lately, especially in light of Stern. So hopefully they'll decide both issues. Makes for good podcasts. <laughs> I would like to thank my guests, Jonathan Landers, Brady Williamson, and Elizabeth Gibson, for taking time to discuss the wellness case with us today. The Supreme Court's decision in wellness will be an important one and is anxiously awaited by those of us in the bankruptcy community. This is Ann Lawton with another ABI podcast. Thank you for listening. (laughs) 